0: Welcome to the due diligence podcast. I'm your host Robert Kraft and for more than 10 years with SNN I've been doing interviews with micro management teams at investor conferences globally as well as online. Our SNN live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest and then one can discover more by going to that company website but personally I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on. That's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high-quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of. One of the many reasons why I love the Microcap space. So if you love Microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. My guest on the show today is Tim Erickson, CEO of Solatron Devices, publicly traded company. The symbol is S-O-D-I. Headquartered in West Palm Beach, Florida, Solotron Devices manufactures power semiconductors and integrated power solutions for systems that demand the ultimate in performance and reliability. Customers in aerospace, defense, industrial, and space rely on Solotron's innovative products to develop smaller, lighter weight, higher efficiency systems level power solutions. Solitron Devices has been requested a few times when I've crowdsourced who y'all want to hear on the show, and Tim did not disappoint. We had a wide-ranging discussion about the history of Solitron Devices and how Tim got involved, crossing over from shareholder to CEO and understanding the defense industry, the downside risks, OTC markets, and where he sees the company in three to five years. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Tim Erickson, CEO of Solitron Devices. Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me right now is Tim Erickson, CEO of Solitron Devices. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is S-O-D-I on O-T-C. And with that, Tim, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Good. My pleasure to join you.
0: It's great to have you on. So uh, I've I've known the story for a while. Been following you for a while, you know. This is uh, we're kind of branding this the, the Tim Erickson Week, uh, if I may. Uh, but I figured I, before we got into you know your investor background and all that that, that we're going to do on the on, on Planet Microcap Podcast, you know, I wanted to dig into the story of Solitron Devices a bit further because I get questions about it and requests to have you want to talk about it all the time. So to to start off, you know, can, can you give us that one line that best describes Solitron Devices? No.
1: <laughs> a one line that best describes no, that one line not one I, line I, I cannot do that okay yeah. uh, how I, about how, how about two lines i don't know um you know Solatron solitron is is a supplier to the defense industry for electronic components um so that's, that's a great
0: one line that's a great one line there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, so I'd love to get into a little bit of the history of the company. I mean, you came in, uh, uh, became CEO July twenty sixteen. So, what, what, you know, give us a little history prior to that, and then what was it about the company that that attracted you and wanted to
1: to participate further? Um, <clears throat> wow. History wise, I mean, this was actually a a stock darling of the late sixties. I think they got listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, you know, as kind of this future technology company, um, it went through the years and and, and, and grew in size, um, went through a bankruptcy, I think, 90, 92, right in that range. Um, reverse stock split, just really struggled. It wasn't really profitable. Um, new CEO came in and really the company kind of went dark as some of the little companies do. It was no longer on an exchange. It was over the counter. Um, They weren't holding annual meetings, you know, for about 15 years. Um, And then the stock kind of was getting written up as a value play over the years, starting in, in, um, you know, 2013, 2012, Um, you know, Nate Tobik, Jeff Moore, and a couple other people were were writing about the stock because it had a lot of cash on the balance sheet and it was profitable and and things like that. So um, it got my attention and, and I love to, to piggyback on activism. I never really desired to do activism. I'm like, this is great. Somebody does something, they unlock the value. I don't do the work, but I get all the benefits. This is great. You know, so I started buying the stock and and there was a couple of large shareholders that I thought would do some activism and they didn't, you know. And then I crossed over 5% accidentally, you know, didn't even realize. I'm like, right now I have to file and kind of came to the conclusion that I should do it, you know, and uh, then having to learn how to do that, you know and go through that process. So this is, you know, 2015. And and what really made me wanna do it, I should point out, activism's hard. Um, Solitron was really unique. In in 2014, 13, the shareholders voted, that was the first time they held a meeting, I think it was 13 or 14, and the shareholders voted against the directors, which you don't see directors lose when they're unopposed, but they lost. Um, Everybody was, there was a pretty strong shareholder base that was upset. You know, so I mean, if you're going to do activism, you want to be able to win because you're going to have to spend a lot of money, you know, at least $100,000 probably with legal costs and and doing proxies and hiring a proxy solicitor and going through all that process. So, you know, I decided to do that process, which was challenging. It's a staggered board. You're not even gaining control. You're trying to just get a seat at the table or two seats at the table at the time of the five directors. Um, We won uh, the proxy fight uh, in 2015. You know, then you're battling in the boardroom and just tough, gut-wrenching going into those. It's not fun being a director where you're just like the enemy sitting at the table and trying to to, to, to work together, um, you know, especially usually after all the things that have been said in the fight. Um, but anyways, we, we worked through that, worked with the directors, and then really lucked into a situation to make a, a COO change. He could have been CEO, but that's just the way we structured it. Um, with Mark Matson in 2016 and and getting a settlement with the past CEO um, and then kind of working from there, you know, of, of really finding out, oh, what did we actually gain control of? <laughs> Oops, it's got a lot more problems than we thought. And then working through all that. And then we had an audit nightmare. And in in what, 18, 19, you know, um, you know we, we just went through some difficulties, but then really hit things really well in the, in the last year and a half or so as, as we had made all the improvements, made all the changes, revenues started to grow. The, the bottom line was really improving, you know, um, and things like that. So it's, you know, now we're at a more challenging stage. We're not this little two or three dollar stock. We're, you know, an eight to ten dollar stock. And it's like, what are you going to do next? And it's like, what are you going to do next? You know, so, yeah, and it,
0: I mean, that's a long time, right? So from taking over to then, you know, finally ironing the things out. I mean, take us through that, your mindset during that time. I mean, what, what was that like?
1: Yeah, I think most people that that are value investors kind of walk in and they're like, "Well, this has got a lot of cash, and and I'm quote getting the business for free. This will be great, you know. And all I got to do is improve capital allocation. You know, the simple fix. It's it's kind of like thinking you're going to flip a house. All I got to do is so all simple. Of, all I got to do is paint it, and I yeah. can flip it and, yeah. and do this money. And then you get inside and you're like, "Oh, there's structural issues or there's plumbing issues and this and that. And and that's really what we found out is like, ooh." You know, there's customer relationship problems. There's you know employee issues. There's there's just all kinds of things that we had to work through. That I'm thankful because I mean I don't think I would well, I don't I wouldn't have had the skill set to do it. Um, we you know the CEO was someone who could come in and work 12 14 hour days and just keep grinding away at those type of problems. I mean finding a CEO COO or CEO that'll do that and in a micro cap where they're not making you know seven figures or even high six figures is 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 tough to find that skill set because in a microcap too they got to wear multiple hats it's not like oh i just manage things it's like man he has to know finance he has to know operations he has to know marketing you know he had you have to know everything to to deal with every little issue and problem um but we had the right person and, and he worked through all that so it's like i don't I don't like it when people give me credit. I just know I'm the public face, but I know that the credits goes to, to him and, and a, lot of the, a lot of other people.
0: So. so so what were your initial thoughts about the business prior to coming in and actually seeing all the plumbing and everything like that, that ended up being either totally false or you, now you changed up your thesis. So like, oh, okay, these are the things that we really need to focus on to unlock value.
1: Yeah, what was false was I, I thought there wasn't really any problems, you know, in that, You know, whether you pay out a dividend buyback stock, you can you can do something on on the capital allocation. And that's that's about it. Um, When we walked in, we soon found out that our largest customer was trying to get rid of us and we didn't even know. So we're like all of a sudden we're we're facing possibly losing 40, 60 percent of revenue. I mean, just decimated. Doesn't matter. You have all that cash because you're going to be bleeding it fast. You know, so it wasn't even in to grow a business. It was just survival mode, um, you know. And because what it attracted me was, wow, this is these are defense industry contracts. That even though they're not long term contracts, once a once a product is, is in a system and tested, they don't just start replacing pieces. They, they, they test the system as a whole and they're not going to replace pieces, you know, and maybe every five years or 10 years it gets a refresh or they redesign some things and certain things are added or taken out, you know, um, but it has a lot of stickiness to it. Um, but if you're out of those programs, you're not getting back in and you're not easily getting into new ones. So um, it, it has some some benefits, but it had some real challenges that we were facing. Um and, and it slowed down what we thought we could just add on to the business. We had to just survive with the existing business and, and, and work through all that. Um, but, you know, we did. Um, and here we are today.
0: Very good. All right. So we're going we're gonna to take a step back because uh, inevitably there are some people that are going to listen to this be like, all right, what does Solitron actually do? So can you take us through uh, the business itself, some, some of the business lines and, and, and exactly what you're selling and how you differentiate yourself from
1: your competition out there? Yeah, I'm, I'm, just to be clear, I, I'm not, you know, an electrical engineer. I'm not an expert at electronic components. I'm not going to speak to to how everything's done. You know, um, we manufacture and assemble electronic components that are used in, in just a ton of different defense applications. I mean, they can be used in, in jets, they can be used in missiles, missile launchers, they could be into um, satellites, satellite launchers, you know, there's just all kinds of, of electronic components that are that are moving about power to, to make something work. Um, you know, a lot of things that, that don't even have to work very long. You know, they could be in a system where it's like, you know, we were dealing with a component that I think runs for, it's either in the seconds or within a few minutes. I mean, that's all that thing has to work for and that's its life, you know. But, you know, we have to manufacture it and we'll test it for hours, although it's only got to run this little narrow thing. Um, so you have these components that are, That are not off the shelf um so they're they're kind of a high cost low run components you know maybe there's a system where we're we're shipping a hundred or a thousand you know these are nothing that are in the the tens or hundreds of thousands you know i mean we're i don't want to speak off top my head i mean i don't think we're shipping fifty thousand parts in, in a quarter i mean it's just not you know if this isn't high run low price um this is low run high price um, so you, you may have an average component price of $100. Um, so, um, yeah, so maybe we're only doing, Anyways, I don't want to do the math off the top of my head, because I don't want to make a, math, a big 10x error there. But anyways, so the, these components that are in the defense industry, um, like I said, on, on a broad range, and um, the, the stickiness of the programs, which is a plus but it's a negative and trying to grow revenues. you can't just oh, if we tweak price, you know we can change maybe our volume and, and our maybe our profit dollars go up because we've increased our volume but at a lower price or it's it, we can do we can change our price, but the volume is what the volume is. you know they've, they've already stated we're buying 500. <laughs> so you know and, and if, when it gets a larger contract with one of the things in the defense industry that people have to understand and we only have one or two where this comes in, mainly one, and that's changing. But if you have a large contract, then it goes under a whole pricing thing where the, the, the government come in and say, show your prices. You can get this much margin and that's it. You know, and you got to document everything of, from beginning to end. Um, and we had that on our largest contract right now. I think it's dropped because they've increased the size of, of what's necessary for that program. Two and a half three million or something, and we're just on the cusp with our largest, and all the other ones are below it, and, and we can control our pricing a lot better. Gotcha.
0: So, so the, tell us a little bit about selling into, you know, military government agency. I mean, that there there is both a long runway with the consumer to actual get selling the good, right? And then, yep. uh, and then, but then there's stickiness, right? Uh, uh, once once you're in, you're in. You know, so tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, when, once you're in, you're largely in. Um, the refreshes can, you know, there's certain, you know, like our largest program we were, we had, I'll, I'll just use a number. Say we had maybe 20 parts in there. And then when it did a refresh, it went to 12, 12 or 15. I mean, it shrunk. Um, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes it, it can expand or they can combine multiple components and, and things change. Um, but just incredible stickiness and, and the length of time of some of these programs the government kind of just keeps modifying, you know, especially like missile systems. They just keep modifying, and something may be around for multiple decades. Um, you know, we did an end of life on a missile program that started in the nineteen fifties, and we did an end of life order with Australia like three years ago. Um, so you get the whole U.S. life cycle. Then it goes to foreign sales, you know, just ongoing foreign sales. Then replacement parts as the system's still going, and just kind of keeps going. So that's beautiful for us is we can look at our largest program and go, wow, we know the US from from public sources, this has 10 or 15 years, then we're going to add, assume we get 10 or 15 years of foreign sales, you know, we're, we can be fairly comfortable that, you know, we have a 30 or more year life, you know, with that product. Um, we don't know exact volumes or different things, but I mean, that is really nice. Um, the downside is, it's like, we think we've really improved our capabilities and we want to get into some of these these existing systems or new systems, but especially existing. It's like, how do, you, how do you get in when they don't want to really let you in unless somebody really fails and is a problem? Then they'll open it up and you can get in. So you're kind of rooting for other people to mess up so we can get in. And that happens a little bit, not as much as we want. But then how often do they do new systems? It's not like you don't read in the news about something new coming out. It's always... Tweaks of existing things, you know, um, a lot of the the systems may have started as you know as a jet based, and then they kind of modify it to make it land based. It's not a whole new system; it's just you know d- adjustments and tweaks. So um, it, it is really challenging to to get into newer programs, and then COVID was just a nightmare for that because they're like, oh, we don't do on site visits, and and you know if you didn't do anything that was that new, um, experimental. Um, so we're just trying to develop products that will fill niches, kind of go to customers, say, Hey, what do you need? What, what are you running into? What's your problem? What, what are you not being able to solve, you know, that we can throw resources at and solve.
0: So, I was going to say, I mean, what, who are you competing against right now or, or, or traditionally, I guess, as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, we <laughs> always have to list competitors in our 10 K well, micro semi or this company or that. And it's like, sure. But are you how? <laughs> the, yes, you're competing and they're in the same industry, but it's like nobody's competing on that contract because it's they don't reopen it every year and say, oh, we want to retest the whole thing and have a whole bunch of different components. So once you're in, you're not really competing. So when something new comes out, which may be every five years or something, you know, there's multiple competitors going in then. Um, and then that all depends on size and scale. You know, we're on the small, the small end, whereas the you know most of the bigger companies aren't aren't going to deal with that. Um, so we're not you know competing against large you know mega caps, a bunch of small caps, family owned businesses, things like that. Sure thing.
0: Do you go outside the U.S. at all and, and compete for other government contracts, or do you strictly only U.S.?
1: Um. Yeah, our foreign sales are usually a, it's a U.S. system that is is being sold to a foreign government, like you know some whatever, whatever the system is that then goes to, you know, we we have certain things that went to Greece now with everything going on. um, And it may flow through the U.S. government or or that government may contact us directly, but it's still basically a system that's in the U.S. or U.S. design that the government's approved for foreign sales. Got it.
0: So you you alluded a little bit to, uh, you know, some of the issues that impacted the company via COVID. You know, we have now it's it seems like that was almost yesteryear with all the new you know inflation everything yep. going on right now you know so uh, take me back you know how how did the company uh, uh, get through some of the COVID stuff that was going on and then and then maybe even take us up till now and how it's pushing through some of the the other issues that we're dealing with from a macro yeah it road.
1: was you know when it first started out operationally it wasn't a big deal we're in Florida which is a state that that you know was one of the first to open um, without getting into politics, it was one of the first to, you know, to do that. And add to that, we're in the defense industry. So we had the kind of an automatic exemption from any shutdowns. You know, we even had little, I think a little laminated card or whatever that our employees could show somebody when we had those first few weeks of, you know, not even supposed to travel much, we could say, no, we're, we're an essential business. We have to do that. Um, so it didn't hit us operationally really at all. um, initially, um, And in in some sense, at first you feel like, wow, this, um, you know, how do we, you know, what is the impact? But over time, this impact just kept growing and growing because all of a sudden we're realizing our order flow was getting impacted. So it didn't show up in initial numbers um, and even in the initial orders, because those had been planned six or nine months before. It really began to hit for us nine or 12 months later. All of a sudden you start seeing a little softness in ordering they're operating a little slower on, on how fast they're doing things um and and then really kind of hit us probably the hardest i would say in the last you know three or three quarters or so um of just softness on the on the order side um and then impacting because we can't do site visits how do you go and say hey how, let us help solve your problem it's like no one's even at the office you know we're still struggling in a lot of states to be able to, to go out and meet them maybe you can do a zoom call but I personally think the productivity level at a lot of the defense industry is is low (laughs) lately. Um, And they're able to kind of get through that by the nature of that business, I think, with being able to pass on a lot of costs. Um, But it's it's impacting the the smaller players a lot.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. No, I I would have thought maybe with I mean everything going on with, you know, the war, the horrible war going on in Ukraine, you know, and wanting to supply, you know, provide supplies and whatnot. And this, this might speak to a little bit of my ignorance <laughs> as to what exactly is being provided and how you guys fit into that. But is there any sort of connection or tailwind to you know, some of what's going on there?
1: There is, but the, the speed is not like, wow, the war starts and and we're getting phone calls within sure, a day sure. or two, or, or, Hey, price this, you know, we want this, you know, we did, you know, um, I think it was post-war. We did have a, a government, you know, reach out and and, and place an order um, for a system, and we did certainly get indications from um, those companies we supply that there's, in a sense, a, a optimistic upside to the, the past order or potential revisions. But you're just like, wow, this really functions slow, and it kind of shocked me of how maybe lack of how unprepared we were for these, this type of thing, you know, in terms of stockpiles and different things that um, we're not as prepared as we should be. And I think a lot of other governments realize, wow, this, this could be over if you have, you know I mean? In a sense, everybody thought Ukraine would be, would be, that would be a very short war and be over in a week. And it's like, well, we couldn't even get supplies to them in a week. You know, it'd be hard to do it from Eastern Europe, but you certainly aren't manufacturing something that you have to then source, you know, from Asia that has maybe a six month lead time You either have to have that on hand or you're in trouble, right? And that's where it's like, to me, they have to either kind of readjust. This is getting in way out of Solitron, but readjust in terms of stockpiles and things like that. But indirectly, that would benefit the the company and make us better prepared um, the more stockpiles you have, because we would have already done those orders or they get replenished. But I'm not thinking of it from a Solitron only, but just from the safety of the world standpoint you got to be able to move the equipment and, and things quickly and know what may be needed quickly. And um, so, and we are seeing, I mean, benefit to the company, I think it, it will come about. I mean, we're seeing, you know, Poland and other, you know, Eastern, you know, Eastern Europe, I can say Eastern Europe countries, Eastern European countries, you know, increase their defense budgets, you know, by 50% or different things that that that's going to flow through Or, you know, how quickly we'll see it. I don't know, but it will tend to flow through um, to, to, broadly to all suppliers. So we'll get some benefit from that. It's just too early to know. Gotcha. So
0: now I'm going to go to some of the more corporate questions, you know, being public company CEO and, and, you know, there's a lot we could get into here because uh, you know, especially with Solitron it's, it's on OTC, but not fully reporting. So, I mean, what and, and with all the new rules that, that came into play last year. So I'd love to hear your perspective being CEO of a company that, I, I, if, I'm not, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, you didn't cross over to go to fully reporting on the QB or QX. You know, it's still on, o, on OTC, but uh, on the expert market. So g- give me the full wrap as to where, you know, what your thought yeah, process no, was there
1: and everything. I mean, we're, we're unaffected by the whole 15C to 11 expert right. market stock and stuff like that. Um, but we are an SEC reporting company, so we have those higher standards, kind of a higher audit, you know. We uh, costs. We have those timeframes that we're supposed to meet, which we're currently delinquent on our 10K, but we're, we're you know, that'll get done or is getting done. Um, but those are things that that reflect on the on the company, you know, those challenges of of meeting that that 45 day deadline, and which you also have if you're OTC you know, they'll, they'll change the symbol. And as soon as you're you're late on things, and if you're too late, you know, then you end up expert market. But um, so those are challenges, you know, that we certainly have to have and small companies just you realize, wow, you just don't have the resources that are expected to have, you know, it's like, you don't just answer a question in a few minutes or push a button, you have a lot more manual systems, you know, a lot more, in our case, we have a lot of manual inventory. We do quarterly inventory counts and true everything up. We're almost, the thing that shocked me is like, we function like a like a clothing retailer did in the 1980s or 90s, where there's like, oh, it's end of the year. We got to close everything up and count everything and tabulate it. And then we know what our, what our costs were. And it's like, it's accurate, but man, that's manual and slow. Um, but you don't just easily have, tracking of every piece and part, you know, with little barcodes and scans, it's like, you don't just implement that, you know, or the cost to implement that. Um, so there's, there's challenges there. Um, but I mean, in, in terms of the listing and, and requirements, it's, 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 there's nothing recently that changed. It's just the ongoing challenge. Got it.
0: And what would you say that investors? What you know after that meeting, you and knowing your history, maybe following Cedar Creek or even following the company for this many years. When you're doing some of your Q and A or speaking with investors that might be new to the story, what what do what do they still get confused about, if at all? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I'm, um, like, what's some of the frequently asked questions that you get from investors that you're like,
1: like? Well, I mean, in terms of the company, yeah. You, I mean, we, I get the, the standard questions, even things that you brought up of like, what exactly do you do? You know what I mean? Cause it, you can, you don't, you have to balance that of disclosure without telling competitors exactly what you do, who you do it for and how much you do it for is not good. If you're in anything that, that involves a, a potential bid. Um, so you don't like to do that. We, we tend to, to be really tight of which programs we're in. Sometimes it slips out in terms of larger ones, but we usually try not to detail that. Um, Probably one of the big questions I get is is the the fear of customer concentration because they'll go, oh my gosh, you know, Raytheon's, uh, what is this, 60% of your sales? What if you lose that? And having to explain through, yeah, Raytheon is, but Raytheon has hundreds of different programs and systems they're in, and they're all kind of independently functioning and, and interacting with us. So it's not like you have all of Raytheon or none. It's like we would have to be suddenly the loss of 20 or 30 different programs that, that we give components for to Raytheon. And it's like that's not likely to happen. Raytheon's just not going under. You know, the government wouldn't even let that happen, I don't think. Um, so that customer concentration risk is often misunderstood. Um I wouldn't call it a strength, but it's just something you have to accept. And, and you also don't go, wow, we want to diversify away from that. Like now, as long as we're program diversified, you know, it is what it is. Just take the revenue wherever you can get it and, and be, be happy with that. Very good.
0: No, that's a good distinction because of course, you know, uh, I've had many CEOs on when they talk about, you know, co- that customer concentration risk, you know, if, if it's a bit nuanced, like what you're saying, then it's, it's a different, it's a, it's a different conversation. Versus yeah. just like that one client, like and then they cut everything off.
1: <laughs> Which yeah, and in microcap land, that that's usually devastating. You know, what Ramp, I mean? it's like it's you saw sixty percent. That's this is a huge red red flag that any investor should think that that should be that is the the right thought initially. But this is, I think, one of those few exceptions. Gotcha. So I
0: also want to get into this because I and I ask every CEO on here uh, this question as well, and you you kind of touched on it a little bit, having to do with downside risk. But in your opinion, what what would you say are some of the company's downside
1: risks from an investing perspective? Ooh, uh, downside risks. Um, wow. I mean, in, in in a lot of ways, it's. I mean, the biggest is kind of a macro picture you know defense spending you know right. um but even then it's like you know we'll have periods where you think you know we, i could you know maybe we're going to live in a world where we don't have as much you know conflict or war or things like that and, and defense industry spending can be shrunk i think you know you have the the, the democratic party is much more for at times shrinking that you know and, and being able to use that more for social programs um so I don't and I don't mean to make it political, but there is always a risk because there's a push for it because it's a it's a big percentage of of, def- of the government's budget when you have 20, 23, 25 percent, you know, going to defense industry. Um, so it's there's always that risk and they do get squeezing. We had, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, we had this whole sequestration process and, and they were like, oh, we're not going to let it grow more than inflation. And and that gets really challenging to to the business and, and, and things. Um, so there, there is certainly that big picture risk. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not in a state where I, uh, a situation where I'm like, wow, fearing this massive blow to the company. You know, I'm, I'm more focused on, on the, you know, the not getting the growth that we're striving to get. Um, so that's a much better problem to have. We, I think we move past the risk of, of, of loss of business. Um, I'm not saying revenue is going to always grow because that's just timing and different things like that. Um, but I think we've we certainly stabilized it and, and have really good relationships with, cu- with customers so that we can then work on trying to grow it. It's just been really frustrating trying to get, you know, that interaction and that product development because we're wanting to, you know, we know we have really good operating leverage as you kind of saw in the last year. And if you go back quarter by quarter in the company, you know and say well what's the margin when the sales are four million or three and a half million in the quarter or three and, and you just see this significant operating leverage that we have and it's just can we can we maintain that and the only way to maintain that is to have higher revenues. The only way to have higher revenues is to have higher bookings the only way to have higher bookings is either have the program itself expand where or they order more or we got to get into new things. And um, we can't we, we can't control you know, the program expanding, we can control getting into new things only so far. So that's why there's more frustration there. But um, it's not like growth is really priced into the stock anyway, so, in gotcha. my opinion. Gotcha.
0: Right, uh, that was that was good. That was was good. a good say in your opinion, of course. In my opinion. Uh, <laughs> um, so then on, on the other side, you know, where do you see the company in three to five years? Or where do you want to see the company in three to five years? And what would you say are some of the inflection points that will get
1: you to where you want it to be? I mean, I don't we don't we don't sit down and try to do hard, fast revenue targets because it's just not an industry where we can do that. I think you know there's certain businesses where you could totally say, we want to do 10, then 15 million, 20, and, and kind of have targets and, and really have a concrete plan for getting there. Um, we, we would get very frustrated if we try to do that. Um, we can certainly do a great job with the existing business and then work on growing the business. We we can model out what we think we look like at 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 additional targets, you know, whether it's a consistent 12 million annual revenue or 16 and 20, and then be prepared for that in terms of do we do we need to do anything facility wise or things like that. And, and it's like, now we're on, we're moving to a new facility. Um, we're single shift, we're working four tens 10s. It's like, you know, you could double shift, you can weekend, it's like, you're not maxing out this facility at all. So we're, there's not like these big inflection points where it's like you would you would grow and then oh stop or margins would get squeezed and then you have to have something happen it's like no we think that that operating leverage is really good yeah if you go to a second shift you add supervisory stuff but any business that's moving from single shift to a second shift is still going to have great economies of scale so it's just that desire to drive the revenue because that's what can make this thing a huge home run but it's 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 not easy. That's the one thing you've It's like, this is really hard. <laughs> you know, on paper, revenue growth is easy. I just put 12% and then just multiply it out and project it out on the spreadsheet. But in reality, <laughs> it's really hard. You know? well,
0: I got to ask you, uh, maybe this is a dumb question, but I like asking dumb questions every time to time. Sure. What do you think is harder, being a, a public company CEO or, you know, running your fund
1: at Cedar Creek? Well, since I'm only a part-time CEO and I have no desire to be the full-time CEO, I I know CEO is the operational person is, is so much harder. I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's other people that would would be like, wow, I would never want to do what you do and look at, look at stocks and do all that analysis. But it's like, I find that a lot easier for me to, to do that, at least with my style of uh, an approach to, to just grind away, look at stuff, go, Nope, Nope, Nope. Oh, that's interesting. and, And dig in more. And that's, you know that's attractive now you know figuring out you know how much in the portfolio do i want to have you know what's it really worth so i know when i'm selling is a lot easier than than just dealing with you know 80 employees and and scheduling and customers and problems and frustrations it's like i have to deal with the emotion of the market going up and down not 80 people and their lives and and not i don't mean anything against people but it's just yeah, this this is much, much more where I'm at. I don't, I'll never become the, I don't think full-time CEO at all. Um, and, 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 you know, so it's a great blend though. I mean, it's, it's Mark and I are, are just, I think, good friends, you know, you know, which we've grown into. I didn't know him before he became COO. Um, but just it's a good working relationship that complements each other. You know, it frees him up from, you know, Focused on dealing with shareholders, answering questions, doing filings. Talking to me. No,
0: talking to me. You know? <laughs> it, it, no offense <laughs>
1: to that, but it's like, no, it's true. That, though. I, that I takes it takes a couple I hours, it. you know? Yep. And, you know, so it's, it, it,
0: no, no. I, yeah, it makes, makes total sense. Yeah. No, I, I say, I say it like complete poking fun at myself because it's the, it's the truth. that does, this stuff does take time. Right. And getting out there
1: telling the story. And, you know, uh, that's why we try and keep it a little chill here, you know, over. Yeah. Uh, yeah like, my my months. wife will laugh because it'll be like, I'll say, yeah, I have a shareholder call. And she's like, that was an hour and a half. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, they had a lot of questions, you know, and it was just like, <laughs> like
0: like how, like how do they have so many questions about your little Solitron devices company? Like what is, what?
1: <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, that would really hurt operations. You, you take someone that yeah. in a smaller business, you, you realize that they're wearing so many hats and, and it's like, I can't even fit an hour and a half into Mark's schedule or something. You know, it, it, it doesn't work that way. They don't have that free time. This isn't, you know, this isn't so huge and compartmentalized that the CEO has, you know, oh, I got a wide open schedule today. Yeah.
0: Well, Tim, I mean, speaking of, you know, your duties kind of being on, on, on the public facing side uh, with, with as being part-time CEO, I mean, you know, you have a number of relationships with a lot of shareholders, a lot of folks that I've interviewed and chatted with before. I mean, yeah. h- how much have, have shareholders influenced any of the decision-making process or,
1: or, or if at all? Well, I listen. Um, <laughs> do I, do I always do? I mean, most of this, the shareholder base, The one good thing is the shareholder base is is, in a sense attracted to the company largely because of the, you know, my approach or my philosophy that they've already kind of share that it's not, there's a few shareholders where it was like, they didn't come to the business because they heard about me. They were in there either before and it's like, no, I, I want a dividend, you know, or I want this, or they're like, they, they have a different, um, different thinking process. Um, you know, the ones that are value oriented are kind of like, no, I trust you to do the right thing with, with the money and make, make the right calls on that. Um, but other people might just be like, Nope, give give, me, give it to me now. Right. And, um, so you do have some disconnect, but for the large part, man, it, it's besides for me owning a good chunk, Mark owning a chunk, people that are in my fund, people that follow, it's like, it, it's such a value-based stock right now. Um, it's it's not difficult, you know, and, and in that sense, it's almost like the same as my fund. I don't have people that are calling me upset, um, you know, about things or about performance. Sure thing.
0: All right. My final question for you on, here on due diligence. Um, and I, I usually end with asking uh, every CEO or management uh, uh, team member on here, whether or not they enjoy, uh, you know, being public company, company CEO, chairman, even CEO, president, stuff like that. But I, I'm... I'm I mean, for, for you, has it given you a new appreciation for what public company management teams do? You know, uh, because I, I mean, I don't know if you were doing it, if you had any kind of roles like this prior, but, you know, especially now since running the fund uh, since I think 2006 and, and, and talking mm-hmm. with these folks, you know, do you have that new appreciation now that you're on the other side?
1: Yeah, it's been, it, it's been a huge learning experience. It's, it's made me appreciate the difficulties of certain things. You know, spreadsheets, everything seems pretty straightforward uh, of, of how things work. You know, um, just personnel challenges to difficulty of growing a business, the difficulty of getting filings in on time, which, uh, you know, doing all that reporting, you know, and then when you're smaller, you realize, wow, that, you know... You, you just don't have all the resources that, you know, that person has to do two or three things and somebody gets sick and you realize we don't really have a lot of extra coverage. You just can't because you're, you're running it leaner to, to stay profitable. Um, so the microcap stuff is, is really shows you a lot. Um, the board experience has been really good. Once you're inside, you're, you're seeing things you, you understand when a little bit about when managements are open, when they're a little closed, some of them are, you know, very closed even to their board, You know what's appropriate, what isn't. Um, Just working through all those things, but it's really—I think—it makes me a better investor. You know, I mean, Buffett kind of talks about you know owning or running a business made him a better investor, and and I think I think the experience has certainly been been hugely beneficial. It's not like my returns are showing something massively changed since then, but um, yeah, it's good. Very good.
0: All right, Tim, well, uh, we'll let's close us out. Uh, where can our audience go and find more information on
1: Solitron devices? Uh, SolitronDevices.com, or you can look up SODI on, on Yahoo or OTC Markets, and, and you can see links there to, to um, press releases and, and filings. You can learn more about the business that way, but the website covers a lot of things and, and products and, and can get into a lot more of the details and even all the way down to schematics of, of understanding the product and 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 what it's doing so there's a lot there very good
0: all right well tim thank you so much for joining me today on due diligence and uh, i invite you all to go and check out our our next interview that we're going to be doing on planet microcap where we're going to be digging into uh, your investing philosophy for and and just you know your thought process on running the fund and all that stuff but tim thank you for joining me on here and uh i'll talk to you soon my pleasure thanks